Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 46. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Would you all pray with me one more time? Father, I want to thank you again for this day, for us to gather here for none other reason than to worship you and to be uh, fed by your word. We ask and pray that the words of God that is living and active will truly pierce our hearts this morning, that will encourage us, convict us, offend us if it has to, that we will, so that we will live according to your word rather than according to this world. We thank you again. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is called Faithful to the Flaky. Faithful to the Flaky. Friends, have you ever experienced or have you ever had an experience where you made plans to do something with someone, maybe your friend, your family, but then they back out last minute? Some of you guys are guilty. Oh, that was not me. Or have you ever had an experience with someone who always do a lot of talking, but don't really back up their talk with the walk? For example, you made plans to go to the movies, or you, go get, you made plans to go get some ice cream, but it seems as though they always have an excuse to back out last minute. It seems as though they always have an excuse for something to not show up. According to uh, an incredibly reliable source called the Urban Dictionary Online, we in today's world like to describe them as someone who is uh, flaky. Have you heard that term before? Flaky? To be flaky means to commit to something, then change plans typically without notice, followed up by a terrible excuse. Maybe some of us could instantly think of names and faces on top of our heads, or maybe some of us would feel a bit guilty because we feel as though at times we have been that flaky person. 
to someone else. Someone who is not reliable. Someone who does not live out what they say. Or someone who seems to always have an excuse for anything and everything. Well, in today's passage, as Jesus is about to wrap up his final meal on earth with his disciples, before going to the cross, he reminds his disciples that all of them, all of his disciples, all 12 of them, is going to be flaky. We see this incredible contrast in today's passage between the flakiness of the disciples versus the faithfulness of Christ. While the disciples did a lot of talking, Jesus walked. And while the disciples were falling asleep, Jesus continued to wrestle in prayer. And while the disciples were running for their lives, scattering, Jesus was willing to go to the cross for their lives. While the disciples were flaky, Jesus was faithful. Initially, I was thinking about separating these two passages. It was a rather long passage, and maybe focusing on the failures or the flakiness of disciples today, and then focusing on the famous passage of Mount Gethsemane. But I felt as though Matthew intentionally, this Gospel of Matthew intentionally placed these two together for us to see how much we fall short in our devotion to Jesus versus how faithful Jesus has been towards his disciples as well as how he is faithful to us. So during our time together this morning, as we compare and contrast the flakiness of the disciples versus the faithfulness of Christ, my hope and prayer is that we will be convicted of our shortcomings, that we'll be challenged and even offended by how much we fall short in comparison to the faithfulness of God. But not only that, as we are convicted of that, we too will be focused in the devotion of Christ, in his commitment, in his faithfulness towards us. And I pray that that will comfort us, encourage us to keep on running this race. So first, the flakiness of the disciples. The flakiness of the disciples. The first thing that we notice in today's passage is how before even the disciples themselves knew about their unreliableness, knew about their flakiness, Jesus already knew. Jesus was well aware of, they, of their flakiness before they even showed. We start this, and we see this starting in verse 31. Jesus makes three or two bold uh, predictions. First, we see that Jesus proclaiming that all of his disciples will eventually fall away. Jesus makes a prediction. He makes a bold proclaim that all of his disciples will eventually all fall away. Jesus is so far one for one, right? We saw Judas uh, previously uh, already planning to betray Jesus for money. And then Jesus goes on to say to, to the remaining 11 disciples that they will eventually all fall away as well. So then we need to ask this question, friends, what does it mean to fall away? What is Jesus referring to when he says you will all fall away? This has been a hot debate throughout history, as some interpret it as they will abandon their faith, meaning they will no longer be Christians. This is why some churches believe that even if you are a Christian now, if you don't actively live out your faith, you can lose your salvation. And then there's a different view who believe that it was a temporary abandonment due to hardships and persecution. Although they will fail to stand with Jesus until the end, although they will fail to stand with Jesus in troubled times, they will eventually be restored to discipleship by the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. I believe what Peter and the disciples 
unlike Judas went through, was the latter. A temporary abandonment of their discipleship towards Jesus due to their external circumstances in life. The reason for this is because I believe once you are saved, you are always saved. Once you are a Christian, you are always a Christian. Some people say you are born again. So let's think about it in baby context, right? If you are born again into this new creation, once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, how can you be unborn, right? Can you shove a baby back to the mother's womb after it's been born? No. If you are born, you are born. So once you are a Christian, you will forever be a Christian. I believe this debate gained a lot of attention due to many people who appeared or who seemed to be good, devout Christians at one point of their lives, yet now they have left the church. I'm sure we all know a few people that, like that who seem to have no desire for Jesus at all. I would say one of, the, one, of two, one of two things happened. Number one, either they have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They might, they might have been faking it. They might have appeared to be Christian, caught by the wave of emotions, but they have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Or they have temporarily abandoned their faith and are running away from their faith. But if there are those who are running away from their faith, but they're true believers in Christ, I genuinely believe, by God's grace, that he will bring them back. We can never outrun his grace. If you are caught by the mercies and the love of God, you can never outrun his mercy and his grace. Isn't that an encouragement? If you have some people in your life, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, who feel as though, who you feel as though they have fallen away, who feel as though they have given up on their relationship with God, pray for them. Pray that their faith is genuine and that God will eventually bring them back. So going back to our question, what does it mean that the disciples fell, or fell away? It simply means that they will scatter and they will fail in being faithful to Jesus when persecution comes. Jesus already knew this was going to happen. He even quotes Old Testament scripture as it has been prophesied from Zechariah chapter 13. We see in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is almost a direct quotation, right, in verse 31. Here, as well as in Zechariah, the shepherd represents Jesus Christ. The shepherd represents the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the sheep represents the people of God who are scattered when they lose their leader. However, what's encouraging is that Jesus makes another bold prediction. He makes a prediction that, yes, people, his disciples will all fail. They will all fall away. But another prediction that he makes is that despite the failures of his disciples, Jesus says in verse 32 that he will wait for them. Jesus makes a bold pro, uh, proclaim in verse 32 of today's passage that after I am raised up, means after he resurrects from the dead and he conquers death and sin once and for all, he will go before them in Galilee and wait for them. Even before the disciples abandoned Jesus, even before the Jesus started falling away, Jesus already reminded them that he'll be waiting for them in Galilee. Jesus already reminded them that he will restore them. Now, in the Bible, there are four Gospels. If you didn't know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've tried to read them one after the next, you would feel as though that you're reading the same thing. They are repeating the same story, and that's true. They are writing about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ 
but from their vantage point, from their perspective. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all talking about Jesus Christ, but from different perspective. So in the Gospel of Luke and John, it seems as though that this passage in verse 32 is flawed. Because we see immediately after Jesus resurrects from the dead, he goes and he meets with his disciples, not in Galilee, but in Jerusalem. If you recall the story, after Jesus is dead, after Jesus is crucified on the cross, his disciples are now scattered and they meet in a hiding place in Jerusalem, deathly afraid that the guards were going to find him. But then Jesus appears. He doesn't even open the door. He walks through the wall and says, here I am. They freak out, right? But then what's interesting is if you look at the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. So who is right and who's wrong? How are we to interpret this passage? I would say both are correct. Both are correct. Jesus first appears in Jerusalem, and then he goes on to Galilee waiting for them. As the disciples make their journey back to Galilee, Jesus waits for them in the Sea of Galilee or he cooks them breakfast by the sea. But the point of this prediction or proclamation by Jesus is that no matter how great your fall is, no matter how great your failures might be, no matter how flaky or how unreliable or how unfaithful you have been, Jesus reminds them that he, reminds them that he will go before them and wait for them, not to scold them, right? not to remember them, right? Not to punish them, but to embrace them, but to restore them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that so comforting? Maybe it's because God's preparing me to become a dad soon. But where parents see their child taking their first step, they're not counting how many times they fell before they took their first step. They're not counting how many times they got back on their knees, but they're counting, they're only focusing on how close they are in running after them and coming towards them. I believe it's the same way in regards to our spiritual walk. Jesus is not keeping record of how many times you've sinned. He's not keeping a record of how many times you've fell. He's not keeping a record of how many times you've been flaky towards him. But what he is interested in and what he is waiting for with open arms is for you to simply run back to him, for you to simply crawl to him, walk to him, whatever it takes for you to come near him. So the first thing that we see is Jesus is well aware of the flakiness of his disciples. But what's interesting is how Peter thought it was the right time. It was the right time, the perfect opportunity for him to protest against these bold predictions. So the second, Jesus, the disciples were refusing to admit their flakiness. Despite Jesus warning Peter and the rest of the disciples that they're going to fall away, despite Jesus saying and warning them, be careful now, you guys are going to fall away, they had failed to listen. They, they underestimated the degree of the persecution that was coming their way. They underestimated just how difficult it's going to be to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. It was a true test of faith that they will encounter soon enough. And one by one, sure enough, they will all fall away. But despite Jesus' warning, Peter has failed to listen to Jesus by putting himself not only above the other disciples, but even above the will of God itself. We see in verse 31, 33, though they all, meaning Jesus, Peter puts himself above the rest of the disciples, he's like, yeah, they all might fall away, but I will never fall away. Even when Jesus gently reminded Peter, more in a specific matter that he will deny Jesus not once, 
not twice, but three times on the same night, Peter refuses to listen as he now even puts his life on the line. We see that Peter was not only not the only one who thought this way, as the rest of the disciples had the same mindset, the same willingness in the spirit and wanting to give their life away for Jesus Christ. But we see that their flesh was too weak. Such great confidence in their own abilities, such lofty passion and willingness to do anything and everything for Jesus Christ, yet they fall short. Soon enough, they couldn't even stay awake for one hour to pray with Jesus. The very ones who have pledged their allegiance and pretty much signed their life away to follow Jesus couldn't even obey a simple command, a request, the last request from Jesus Christ to stay awake and to pray with him. Not once, not twice, but three times. We see this in verse 40, 43, and 45, right? Jesus comes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. He wakes them up. He goes back to pray. He comes back again. He still finds them sleeping. And then last but not least, he comes back in verse 45 and he says, it's time. It's time for me to go. Isn't it ironic that Peter, who seems so bold and courageous, has failed to stay awake and pray three times before he eventually denies Jesus three times? I think there's a pattern or a sequence to our sin. Not only Peter, but the rest of the disciples. Jesus knew all along as he states in verse 41, that although the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. What does that mean? Although the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Maybe some of us have experienced uh, times like this before. Maybe we get really convicted, maybe in a retreat or a mission trip, or even on a Sunday service, that we want to make some very good commitments to grow in our faith. We want to wake up every morning an hour earlier to pray before we go to work. We want to wake up a little bit earlier to do devotions, to, to spend time meditating upon God's word. We want to share the gospel with our non-Christian friends. We want to serve the church in every possible way. With a spirit is swilling, our fires are burning. But as soon as we realize, but soon we realize that man, although our hearts are on fire, although our hearts are burning, although our spirit is willing, our bodies are weak. Our flesh is too weak. As we compare the flakiness of the disciples to the faithfulness of Christ, I think one wrong way to apply this passage is to simply say, oh, because Jesus is the Son of God, it was much easier for him to be faithful. I am not God, so I can never be faithful as God. He was sinless, and all he, had to do, he had all the dominion and power. I don't have that. So it's much easier for him than me. He had all the dominion and power accessible at his fingertips, so he wouldn't understand what I'm going through. He wouldn't understand what, he, what, what I'm going through right now. He wouldn't understand the struggles of the spirit being willing, but the flesh being weak. I would say, if you, were, if you think that way, you are terribly wrong. As we look at the faithfulness of Christ, our second point, we see Jesus in his humanity in full display. We now look at the faithfulness of Christ. What we need to make sure is that we don't misinterpret or we don't skip over the fact that, yes, Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully man. What does that mean? Jesus is fully man. Today's passage puts the humanity of Christ in full display as Jesus is agonized, groaning, lamented in prayer with God. 
And through his prayer, through his wrestling in prayer, we see that it wasn't easy for Jesus to go to, cross, go to the cross. It wasn't a piece of cake for Jesus to say, okay, I'm going to go die and be crucified on the cross because I know that I'm going to rise again in three days. No, it was difficult. It was painful. It was agonizing for Jesus to go to the cross. But because we tend to focus so much on the divinity of Christ and his um, authority and his power, we undervalue his humanity in how he was depressed and how he was weak. Friends, although Jesus was fully God and fully divine, he chose to share humanity completely. Meaning, all the sufferings that you go through, the greatest pain that you might ever go through emotionally, mentally, physically, he's gone through it all. He had to share humanity and body, mind, and emotion so that he can stand in our place on the cross. So that he can stand in our place as our substitute for our sins and our representative before the Father. Meaning if Jesus was not fully man, he would be disqualified to atone for our sins. So Jesus, knowing what lies ahead of him, goes to Mount Gethsemane to pray and plead with his heavenly Father. And we see in verse 37 of today's passage that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I think a better translation of that is he was in anguish. He was in deep anguish and distress. Luke chapter 22 goes more in detail as we see that Jesus began to pray in agony and pleaded with God. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Have you ever prayed like that before? Have you ever groaned and agonized so much that your sweat became blood? So what was Jesus praying about? What was he so agonizing about during this prayer? We see in verses 39 and 42 that Jesus is praying for the cup to pass from him. Verse 39 says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass, if this cup cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. So what is this cup? What is this cup that Jesus is referring to? It's referring to his death on the cross. It's referring to his crucifixion on the cross. But you see, it wasn't just him being nailed to the cross that he was sweating about. It wasn't just the physical pain that Jesus is about to go through that he was agonizing about. It was much more than that. It was the greater burden of bearing the sin of all mankind, becoming a curse on our behalf, as Jesus drank the wrath of God in full judgment for all our sins once and for all. That's what he was in distress about. This is why we see Jesus wrestling in prayer. Despite the agony, despite the great suffering that awaits, Jesus never one questions God. Right? For some of us, we get a paper cut. God, why? Right? We jam our toe. Oh my gosh, God, why is this happening to me? Get into a car accident. Lord, not again. Never once we see Jesus questioning God. But rather, we see his faithfulness and his commitment to God as well as to his people. So faithfulness to God and to his people. As Jesus prays over and over again and communicates with God, in the end, it's never about what he wants. How about our prayers? God, I want this new car. God, this 
this girl or this guy in school, you got to make her like me. We see in Jesus' prayer, it's never about what he wants, but it's about aligning his will to the Father's will. It's always about the will of God. He first starts off with a plea. He's desperate. In verse 39, he says, If it be possible, please, Lord, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. We see this struggle. But there's a progression in his prayer. As he continues to pray, as he continues to plead before God, as he prays again, the more he prays, the more he begins to make it about his Father's will rather than his desires. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went again, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. Friends, isn't this the prayer that he teaches us? Right? The Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'll say during my college years, one of my greatest struggles was my relationship with my father. My father is a pastor, and I vowed to never be a pastor because of him. Never say never, right? One of my biggest struggles was I just really didn't like how the relationship was between me and my father. And whenever I would pray, I would say, God, you need to change him, man. He's just so messed up. How could he call himself a pastor when he doesn't love his family, when he doesn't love me? I wrestled with that prayer for the whole four years in college. And man, I kid you not. During my freshman, sophomore, junior year, the only thing I was like, God, you got to change this guy. you got to change his heart. Please change his heart. I would fast. I would pray. And then during senior year, I kid you not, I, would, I was thrown off by my prayer. Without even me knowing, I was praying, God, help me. Don't change my, rather than changing my father, change my heart to understand my, my father better the way you understand him. And help me to love my father the way you love him. Help me to see my father the way you see him. And that broke me. And that helped me to realize, maybe for the first time, why so many pastors tell me, oh, just pray about it. Right? Have you guys heard that? You have like a very big decision to make. Or should I go for grad school? Which job should I take? Oh, pray about it. Man, that's such a cop-out answer. That's such an easy answer. No, I think the reason they say that, now that I realize it's, as you pray, maybe some of you guys are wanting an audible voice from God. Go to this school, right? Or you need to date this guy, right? Well, that's not why we pray. We pray because as we pray, we confess our sin and our hearts are purified. And that's when we can make the best decision that God desires for us to make. As we pray without even us knowing, the more we pray again and again, just like Jesus, he is now aligning our hearts, calibrating our hearts to his will more and more rather than our own will. Isn't that awesome? That's why we need to wrestle in our prayers. Not once, but continually. Man, if Jesus prayed this much, how much more do we need to pray, right? As Jesus faithfully perseveres in his prayer, we see a progression. And I believe that's 
what desires, God desires for us as well, a progression in our faith, a progression in our prayer life, from pleading with God to ultimately submitting to His will. God, may Your will be done, whatever You want, whatever You desire. We see in verse 45 that after Jesus prayed three times, His agony transformed to boldness. His distress has been replaced with calmness. As Judas was coming to meet Jesus with the chief priests and elders to arrest him, we see no sight of fear, no sight of resentment, but rather Jesus faithfully goes to obey his Father's will to die on behalf of his people. So then the question that we've got to ask is, what does this passage got to do with us? What are we to make of this passage? What has this passage got to do with us? I guess I can give a charge here and close in saying, we need to pray like Jesus. We need to stay alert. We need to stay awake spiritually just as Jesus commanded his sleepy disciples so that we don't become flaky. We need to stay awake and pray. To go climb a mountain, go find a prayer mountain somewhere and to pray and cry out until your sweats start turning to blood. That's what we need to do. But I believe that would be missing the main point of today's passage. The point is not about what more do we have to do to stay alert or to stay awake. The main thrust of this passage is not about our ability or what we need to do to become a better Christian. But the emphasis of today's passage and the whole gospel is the fact that despite our failures, despite our flakiness, Jesus was still faithful and he will always be faithful. We need to learn from the failures of the disciples and realize that we cannot rely on our own abilities or we cannot rely on our own inabilities, but rather only upon the reliable faithfulness of God. Jesus is well aware of our failures and our inabilities. He knows that we're going to fail. He knows that we will fall at times. Jesus knew that Jesus, uh, Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew that his disciples, one by one, was going to abandon him, even if they said they'll put their life on the line. Jesus knew that even Peter, even Peter, who was so vocal about how loyal he was going to be, would end up denying him, not once, but three times. However, despite knowing all this beforehand, Jesus still went to Gethsemane to pray. And despite knowing all of this, Jesus still went to Golgotha, where he would ultimately be beaten, mocked, and crucified. On the cross. Likewise, Jesus is well aware of our failures. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our fallenness. He knows our hidden sins. He knows our unreliableness or our flakiness. Yet out of his love for us, he first chose us to be his. He initiated the relationship. He got into a relationship with us knowing well before that we're going to end up breaking his heart again and again and again. Friends, who would do such a thing, right? Who does that? Would you ever be in a relationship with someone when you know, hey, uh, let's, you and me, let's get married or let's be in a relationship. Like, just letting you know, I'm going to cheat on you a lot. I will break your heart all the time. Would you, who in their right mind would be in that relationship? But that's what Jesus Christ has done and is doing and will continue to do. The faithfulness of our Father. 
faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who would do such a thing? Jesus would. And he did. And he would do it all over again if he had to. Friends, this is the incredible, the incomprehensible love of Jesus Christ. I just want to share one story before we close. Uh, I'm sure some of us have heard this, but it's a story of this person named Robert Coleman. Story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. She was suffering from the same disease that the boy himself had survived two years earlier. So the doctor explained that the only chance, the only chance for her sister to survive and to recover was to receive a blood transfusion. To receive a blood blood transfusion from someone else who had conquered the same disease. So the only one was the boy. Since the two two children uh, shared the same rare blood type, her brother was the ideal donor. So the doctor asked the boy, would you give your blood to Mary? Would you give your blood to your sister, Mary? So Johnny, this boy, hesitated at first. But with his lower lip trembling, he finally said, sure, for my sister, yes. Soon the children were wheeled into the hospital, Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. Neither one of them spoke, but when when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. His smile faded as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, and he watched the blood flow through the tube. And when the ordeal was almost over, Johnny's shaky voice broke the silence. He said, doctor, doctor. When do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated and why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. He thought the doctor was asking for it all. He thought doctor was asking for all of it, yet out of his love for his sister, he was willing to give it all. Friends, although that's a touching story, there's a significant difference between Johnny And Jesus Christ. You see, this boy, Johnny, was willing to die for his sister, but he didn't really understand what was happening. But for Jesus, he was willing to die, fully knowing and understanding what was about to happen. Friends, how are we responding to this love? How are we to respond to this undeniable grace? Let's not focus on our failures. I think the more we focus on our sin, the more we focus on how far we are from Jesus Christ, the more discouraged that we get. Yes, we need to confess and admit that we are sinners. But we need to focus upon His faithfulness. I would say take a glance at your sin and gaze upon the faithfulness of Christ. Every time you look at your sin once, gaze upon Jesus Christ ten times. The only way for us to overcome sin is for us to focus not upon our inability, but upon Christ's ability. Just as he waited for his disciples in Galilee, he's waiting for us every morning with open arms. Every morning that you rise, he's waiting. Spend time with me. Rejoice in my word. To meet with us, to restore us, to strengthen us again and again. Grace Fellowship, can we go to him this morning in awe? Can we go to him this morning in thankfulness for his love, for his grace, and for his faithfulness? Let's pray together.